You're listening to Crosspoint Community Church in LaGrange, Texas podcast. To learn more about Crosspoint Community Church, including service times and how you can connect, please visit crosspointchurchtx.org. Well, good morning. And uh, anyway, this week we began a new series entitled uh, Postcards. And uh, how do you remember what a postcard even looks like? It's one of those things. They actually, when we were in Israel, there were a few bookstores we went into, and they were there. And the pictures look just like your pictures, but um, you can write something on the back of it, which is kind of cool. And so we came up with our own little postcard for us for summer vacation. And uh, some reason, the graphics team thinks that I like lemonade. So I don't know um, what that's about. But anyway, so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at postcards from Scripture. And postcards, as I define them, are books of the Bible that are one chapter. It's a, just a short snapshot that the person that writing it, that God laid upon their heart, and it's an important message, but they got it out quickly. And so it's a good junior high sermon. It's like five minutes, you get their attention, you hit the message, and you're out. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah. We mean more coffee and donuts. Okay. So this morning we're going to be looking at Obadiah. And Obadiah is an Old Testament book. So if you have your Bibles... You can turn to about Matthew and go seven or eight books back. Obadiah is a minor prophet, and he's minor because he wrote a little bit, all right? And uh, not because he wasn't important, but just because he didn't write a whole lot. And so Obadiah is a minor prophet. So we'll dig into that. But I want to give you a little bit of background of where we're at so you can understand Obadiah and his situation and why he is called out by God to write. And so a little bit of history here. So you've heard of this guy, Moses, and Moses led the people out of Egypt toward the promised land, right? And then this other guy, they didn't quite make it because they had messed up, that generation messed up, so they weren't allowed to enter into the promised land. But this guy named Joshua was able to lead the people into the promised land. And then once they got into the promised land, they didn't have a king, they didn't have a ruler, but they had what they called judges. And judges would rise up within a generation that was a leader, that people, somebody that was highly respected, and they were kind of elected by the people to be a judge. People would bring their issues to them, and they would judge that situation. And so they went for several generations like that. And then one day, the people of Israel began to look around and go, hey, we're unique. We're the only nation that still has this judges system. Everyone else has a king. We want to be like everyone else. And so God's like, "Mm, no, you really don't. And other prophets are like, no, you really don't. And they're like, yes, 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 yes. We want to be like everyone else. And so finally God said, okay, I'll give you what you want and um, or what you think you want. And so God gave them a king. And the first king that they chose or that was chosen was King Saul, who looked like a king. He was tall. He was good looking. Everything that everyone thought a king should be looked like on the outside he was. But on character wise, he wasn't who he should be. And so they elected king and king. First one was Saul. And then the next one was this other guy named David. And you all know a little bit, maybe a story of David. David killed Goliath and he was still a young man. But he was fighting for the righteousness of God. And so he killed Goliath and Saul killed his hundreds, but David killed his thousands. And so then there began this tension between Saul and David. And eventually Saul was killed in battle with along with his sons. And David had already been anointed king. He became the king 
of Israel. And under David's rule, David was a military leader, and he began to establish a greater kingdom, a wider kingdom, a stronger kingdom for the nation of Israel. And David was a feared military leader. He did make one mistake when he saw Bathsheba because he wasn't out doing what he was supposed to be doing. But that was also a time of repentance and renewal. And it brought this disharmony to David's house. But out of that came this guy named Solomon. And Solomon was a son of David. And Solomon was the considered and still is considered one of the wisest, if not the wisest kings and leaders in all of the world. And his kingdom under him, he wasn't a military leader. He was a wise leader. And he grew the kingdom not only in boundaries, but also in wealth and in stature. So much so that other kings and queens would travel from all over the world to sit at the feet of Solomon and to learn from him how to establish their kingdom like his and how to grow theirs. And so he grew all the um, roads passed through Jerusalem and through King Solomon's um, house at the time. Well, Solomon then had this model kingdom, so to speak. He had one of the things that he did, which worldly maybe seemed wise, but through God's eyes was not, was he would marry other princesses and queens of other nations so that he would have allies. But he also then allowed them to worship their gods. And so false gods begin to infiltrate the kingdom. And then his son, Rehoboam, became king after Solomon died. Now, Rehoboam enters in, and this is like the kingdom. This is the wealthiest. I mean, everybody wants to be the king. Like everybody's like, man, this guy has got it made. And then some of his wise counsel people came to him and they said, hey, Rehoboam, you have got it made. Here's one thing that you can do to like truly establish yourself as one of the greatest kings of Israel is would you please, we've been growing, we've been having all these military things, things have been going well, but it's been on our backs to do this. It's been on our backs by taxes. Every single year taxes increase and then every single year the work gets harder. So can you just kind of dial it back for a little bit? As you come in, can you offer an edict to say, listen, we're going to lower taxes by 10%. We're going to lower the workload by a little bit so everybody can kind of catch their breath. Because I want people to see me as a benevolent king. But Rehoboam didn't listen to the wisdom of his people. And he said, not only am I not going to lower taxes and make work easier, I'm going to double your taxes and double the work. Did not go well. Within the first couple of months... Of his kingdom, the kingdom split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom became the nation of Israel. It just kind of took on that name, the northern kingdom. And there were ten tribes that revolted and said, we're not going to pay more taxes. We're not going to do more work. And then two, the southern kingdom, Judah, those two stuck with him. And so over the next few generations, there was this constant strife and this constant battle that was going on between these two. And finally... In 722, because of the division, the Assyrians came in and overtook all of the northern part of Israel. And then a few generations later, the Babylonians came in, which I've seen on uh, VeggieTales, you know, the bunny, the bunny. That, that guy came in, and he overtook the southern kingdom and wiped out the temple, the place of worship, and wiped out Jerusalem. And so the very holy sites, the holiest of holies, was wiped away, and those people were dispersed. And so this is where you hear of Daniel 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all those people, they were part of the southern kingdom and they were taken away to the Babylonian kingdom. And so this is also where you hear the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a part of the Babylonian set away and he was a part of that crew and he was a cupbearer and he hears of the destruction of the southern kingdom. He hears of the destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem and the wall that surrounded it. And so whenever he heard of that, he then got permission to go back and to begin to rebuild the wall. And so in the midst of this divided kingdom, in the midst of, of all this that's going on, Obadiah is a prophet in the midst of this that God calls out. Because there was one group of people called the Edomites who were relatives of this guy named Esau. And if you remember the story of Esau, Esau was the brother of Jacob. And Esau was a guy who gave up his birthright for food. And so Esau is an Edomite, and the Edomites, even though they were Israelites, even though they were Hebrews, they lived high up in the mountains, they lived up in caves, and they actually fought against their own brothers and sisters, against their own relatives, and helped other nations defeat and attack them. And so here Obadiah is a prophet that writes to the people of Esau, the Edomites, and talks about their doom and why they are going to be doomed. But he doesn't write to the Edomites, he writes to the Israelites. He wants the Israelites, God wants the Israelites to know that he is their protector, he is their strength, he is their redeemer, he is their restore. He will bring justice and he will bring shalom, peace, at the right time, in the right place. And the people of Edom, Esau's relatives, because of their character, will be wiped out. But God, for over 400 years, continually offers restraint and offers an opportunity for the peace of Edom, for the people of Edom to respond to his mercy, to respond to his grace, and to repent. But they never do. So this is the story of Obadiah. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. If not, it's going to show up on the screen, and you can follow along with me. Before we dig into it, what does it mean for someone to be a prophet? Obadiah, as a prophet, was a mouthpiece chosen by God to speak to the people of God, to proclaim a specific message to a specific people in a specific situation. And a lot of times when God spoke to the prophets, he spoke to them through dreams, through visions, through signs and symbols. It's a little bit different than that. But whenever they would talk, whenever they would proclaim something, a prophetic, prophetic message, they would always say, thus saith the Lord. That it wasn't a message that was from them, for them. It was a message from God. And the authority of the message wasn't the prophet, but it was the the Lord. And so they would always say, thus saith, saith the Lord. And it was always a threefold message. The first part, repent. You are headed in this direction, people. Repent. Recognize that this is the wrong direction. Repent. Turn around and walk in this direction toward God. That was the first part. The second part was this. A Messiah is coming. The anointed one of God is coming. And the third part of the message is the Messiah is coming and he will save and restore his people. And as we know, because we get to look back, all three of those things are true. But are even true for us today. That many of us, if not all of us, have been walking in a direction like this. And at times we have to stop and to recognize that the direction we're walking is not toward God, but it's away from him. It's not life-giving. And we need to recognize that and repent 
take responsibility for our ownership in this path and turn around and walk back toward God. That's actually a constant for us as followers of Jesus as well. Is there are trinkets, there are idols, there are things that draw our attention. And when they draw our attention, what happens? We have to drift this way. And along the way, there's warning signs, there's things that allow us to stop and go, what, what, I've drifted away from the path of God, now I need to repent and come back. And that's the story of Obadiah. Here's what we know about Obadiah, exactly. We know nothing about him other than his name. And there were hundreds of Obadiahs at the day, and his name means servant of the Lord. So we don't even know, like we could go back and like open up the phone book, and we wouldn't even know which Obadiah it was. And I think that's part of the beauty of that God uses regular people to do his work. But he did write to the Edomites, and they gloated over Israel's defeats, and they helped and even abdicated the responsibility. So chapter 1, which there's only one chapter of Obadiah, starting in verse 1, it says this. We have heard a message from the Lord that an ambassador was sent to the nations to say, Get ready, everyone. Let's assemble our armies and attack Edom. And the Lord says to Edom, I will cut you down to size among the nations and you will be greatly despised. That's not a good word to hear, is it? You've been deceived by your own pride. Never would happen to any of us. Because you live in a rock fortress and make your home high in the mountains. You see how this can even speak to us? As 21st century Americans, do we ever have pride because we have pride before the fall? Here's what it says. Who can ever reach us way up here? But even if you soar as high as eagles and build your nest among the stars, I will bring you crashing down, says the Lord. If thieves came at night and robbed you, what a disaster awaits you. They would not take everything. For those who harvest grapes always leave a few for the poor, but your enemies will wipe you out completely. Every nook and cranny of Edom will be searched and looted. Every treasure will be found and taken. All your allies will turn against you. They will help to chase you from your land. They will promise you peace while plotting to deceive and destroy you. Your trusted friends will set traps for you, and you won't even know about it. And at the time, not even a single wise person will be left in the whole land of Edom, says the Lord. For on the mountains of Edom, I will destroy everyone who has understanding. The mightiest warriors of Teman will be terrified. And everyone on the mountains of Edom will be cut down in the slaughter. Well, that's a happy little message. It's something we don't talk a whole lot about is the wrath of God. What does it look like? What do we understand about God being a God of wrath? We have a tendency to like the God that's tender and compassionate. And we've been saying he's a good, good father. And those things are true, but he also has a righteous wrath about him because God is holy, because God is just, because God is righteousness, because God is against evil, and because God is not a cosmic genie. That if we just do things the right way or pull the lever at the right time, that he pours out blessings. God's justice will always come. Even think, think about the Canaanites, or as our guide in Israel a few weeks ago would say, the Canaanites. And uh, it took us a few days to understand what he was saying. And then finally someone had the brave enough to say, are you saying Canaanites? And he said, no, I'm saying Canaanites. But um, we were talking about the same people. 
The Canaanites were evil, considered the most sexually depraved culture of any culture in the ancient world. They practiced everything and human sacrifice, and it was a bloodthirsty cult. And so many of the depictions, many of the stuff that we read about them, must, much of their stuff had to do with sexual depravity, with sacrifice, and then bathing in that blood. So you can imagine. They were the worst of the worst. And God spoke to them time and time and time again. And for 400 years, he allowed it, even while it kept getting worse. For 400 years, he offered restraint and patience. But the scripture tells us, finally, God could stomach it no more, and he had to vomit them out. This is the God of the Bible. A God who is just and holy and righteous and despises evil. And he loves us fiercely enough that he offers restraint and patience so that we're walking and we're drifting. And sometimes we're not even drifting. We're intentionally walking toward evil and depravity. And he lets us walk that way for so long. And that eventually he says, enough is enough. And he ends it. And that was true for the Canaanite people. They were wiped out. Eli Weissel is a Holocaust survivor, and he says this. He says, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. It's seeing something or seeing a loved one move in a direction, and we say that we love them, but we're indifferent to it. We never step in and lovingly say, hey, do you see where you're going? And to continue after them so that they might find life. There's a theologian, Miroslav Volf, who was experienced the genocide of Croatia and Yugoslavia. And he said this, he, he always questioned, why can God be wrathful? It didn't make sense to them until he experienced what he experienced in Croatia and Yugoslavia. And he says this, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Because of his love and his holiness and his righteousness, justice at some point has to when out. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence that you did to your close relatives in Israel. So remember, the Edomites were relatives of Esau, and guess where the nation of Israel began? It began there with Jacob and Esau. So there was a split, and so there was this tension that continued for generations. So because of the violence you did to your close relatives, you will be filled with shame and destroyed forever. When they were invaded, Israel was invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem, but you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in the terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads killing those who tried to escape. 
You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over to their ter- handed them over in their terrible time of trouble. You see it over and over. You should not have. You should not have. You should not have. That is their character. Their character showed, and they should not have, but they chose to do it anyway. And so in this passage, God shows that he's done with violence and theft and murder and betrayal and arrogance and spite toward God and toward the nation of Israel. And it wasn't just their actions, but also their inactions. That they saw that they could have been a help, that they could have been a bridge. They could have reached out and helped their brothers and sisters and neighbors. And they chose not to. And even stepped in and said, hey, we're going to help you finish them off. Think about a couple of stories. There's one from a couple of years ago. A woman on a subway in Philadelphia that she was being assaulted for 12 stops on a subway. And people watched for 12 stops. And the assault didn't stop until a subway policeman gets on the train and sees what's happening. Then there's intercession. But even afterwards, no one would come forward to say that they had seen it. And actions speak as loud as actions. There's even an older story of a lady in the 60s. Her name was Kitty Genovese. That she was murdered right in front of her own apartment complex. And for 30 minutes, people heard her screams. And for 30 minutes, it says over 38 people heard the screams. And all of none of them responded. And that if one had responded within that 30 minutes, she may have survived the attack. In actions matter. When we have an opportunity to step in and to respond in the midst of violence, in the midst of offense, we can be the bridge to life. But too many times we step back. There are sins of commission and omission. Verse 15. The day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. All you have done to Israel, so be it, will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. Just as you swallowed up my people on the holy mountain, so you and the surrounding nations will swallow the punishment I pour out on you. Yes, all you nations will drink and stagger and disappear from history. But Jerusalem will become a refuge for those who escape. It will be a holy place. And the people of Israel will come back to reclaim its inheritance. The people of Israel will be a raging fire and Edom, a field of dry stubble. The descendants of Joseph will be a flame roaring across the field, devouring everything. There will be no survivors in Edom, and I, the Lord, have spoken. Then my people living in the Negev will occupy the mountains of Edom, and those living in the foothills of Judah will possess the Philistine plains and take over the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And the people of Benjamin will occupy the land of Gilead. And the exiles of Israel will return to their land and occupy the Phoenician coast as far as Zarephath. And the captives from Jerusalem, exiled in the north, will return home and resettle in the towns of Negev. Those who have been rescued will go up to Mount Zion in Jerusalem to rule over the mountains of Edom. And look at this last phrase. And the Lord himself will be king. 
In other words, Edomites, all the things that you have done, they will be done to you and more. And the nation that you have despised and you've ridiculed and you've actually taken out against, they will be restored. And the Lord himself will be king on high in the city of Jerusalem, in the holy place. One of the things that you may or may not know is Mount Moriah is the place where the temple is. And Mount Moriah is the place where God asked Abraham to take Isaac to be sacrificed. And so God is saying, on this holy place, I will continue to return and to bring my people to remind them of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, archaeologists have found Edom. And guess what happened to Edom? It was burnt to the ground in 583 B.C. The words of God will not return void. God is involved in the details of history. God is involved in the details of your life. He's a holy and loving God who fiercely loves you and cares for you and wants you to quit drifting, wants you to quit intentionally walking to things that are not of him so that you can experience life to the full in him and to own our stuff. And in the moments whenever he calls us to be mature believers in Christ, to not stand back and be inactive, but to step in and to be ones that step in and say life-giving things that may correct someone who's drifting or intentionally walking away. Because the very fire that we get close to that feels warm, that we love at a camp, and we love the feeling of the warmth, and we can sing Kumbaya and have those moments, that same fire, when it's let out of its boundaries is an all-consuming fire. And that's the picture that Obadiah draws for us of who God is, is that God is, a, is an always-burning fire. And his righteousness, his holiness, his love, everything about him is in that fire. And in the confines, we can draw near and enjoy the warmth of that. But what do we teach our kids? Don't touch the fire because it burns. And then when the fire is let outside of its boundaries... It's an all-consuming fire that can burn away. As we've seen in Canada, as we've seen in Colorado, we've seen in California, a fire let go is all-consuming. When justice comes the right way at the right time, there's what is called shalom, which is peace. And this shalom means peace and health and prosperity. And scripturally, whenever they talk about shalom, it's this idea when God and humans And all of creation act together, and in that moment, there's justice and peace and wholeness and love. It's just like everything is right in that moment. And why is that? It's because of that last verse in Obadiah. The Lord himself is king, but he's on his throne, and all things are right. Evil will not have the last word. It will never have the last word. God will always have the last word. So this morning, whatever you carried in here today, pain is not the last word. Cancer is not the last word. Joblessness is not the last word. Poverty is not the last word. Hunger is not the last word. Loneliness is not the last word. Rejection is not the last word. Abandonment 
is not the last word. Divorce is not the last word. Persecution is not the last word. Racism is not the last word. Sexism is not the last word. Abuse is not the last word. Even death is not the last word in Christ. God is on his throne, and he has the last word. Even in Revelation, it says this, chapter 11, verse 15 and 16. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. That's the last angel. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshipped him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The last word comes from God himself on his throne. There may be those that are like Edomites, and it just feels like they're just picking you to pieces. And they should be your friends, but they are your enemies, and they find ways to try to defeat you, and and you're just in the midst of all this. That is not the last word. The story of Obadiah is this book was not even written to the Edomites. It was written to the Israelites to encourage them to, to know them, that he will restore them and bring shalom to them at the right time, at the right place, in the right way, so that the world will know that God is a holy God and offers patience and mercy and grace to his enemies, but at, the, at some point, his righteousness will win out. Thank you for joining us for the Cross Point Community Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this message was encouraging to you as you follow Jesus. For more about Cross Point Community Church, you can find us online at crosspointchurchtx.org. Have a great week.